Let's read our text. It comes out of uh, Matthew chapter 22, as I said. Uh, we'll read uh, 11 verses, beginning at verse 23. You follow as I read. That which is inspired, inerrant, infallible, the very mind of God is black words on a white page. Here it is. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. I had given some thought to uh, doing something this morning that was that was weird, you know, hip. Uh, I thought about um, uh, this morning preaching on the birth of Christ and then come Christmas time preaching on the resurrection of Christ. I decided against it. <laughs> um, at least my wife decided against it. Um, but um, Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the literal, bodily, uh, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about resurrection this morning, but we're going to do it with a bit of a twist, so, so stay with me. Uh, to my knowledge, the only place in the New Testament where Jesus debates the issue of the resurrection is the text that I read you from um, with the Sadducees. And he's really not, in this instance, he's really not debating his resurrection. He's debating our resurrection. Um, like, like Paul would say later on in 1 Corinthians 15, if there be no resurrection, even Christ is not raised from the dead. Christ knew that if you eliminate resurrection, like the Sadducees did, then you eliminate his and so he vigorously opposes the Sadducees in this scene. Um, and by his so doing, he, he establishes our resurrection and defends his own. Now, guys, the, the, uh, the scene that I've read you is a very modern conversation. It's modern. I, I say that it's modern for this reason. What you have in this scene is a, is a religious leader who is debating the resurrection with a group of skeptics. <laughs> That's pretty modern. That happens a lot now. Um, 
debating the issues and, and, and the, the situation is very tense, like, like it is in the 21st century. It's, it's flammable. And it's flammable for good reasons, folks. Let me show you what I mean. Um, you know that, that, well, maybe you don't, but this, this scene takes place uh, in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the last week of his life began with the triumphal entry on Sunday. We looked at it last Sunday, remember, with the palm branches and the donkey and all the business. He rides triumphantly into Jerusalem. That's on Sunday. The event that we're looking at takes place on Tuesday, maybe Monday, but probably Tuesday. And in between Sunday, the triumphal entry, and Tuesday, this thing, oh, several things have happened. Several things that have happened that have really, that have really raised the temperature of this whole uh, opposition that he's facing. Let me show you. If you've got your Bible still open, we've read out of Matthew 22. The triumphal entry takes place in Matthew 21. That's on Sunday. The next day on Monday, Matthew 21, uh, beginning at verse, um, if I could see it, 12, uh, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. Remember what that was? When Jesus comes into the temple and he turns over the tables of the money changers and, and, uh, and drives out the people who are selling animals and, and, um, he says, uh, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Now, how do you expect his, opponents took that well a few hours later we find out uh, they find him they corner him and they say by the way that's later on in chapter 21 uh, beginning in verse 23 by what authority do you do these things that you're doing now, how do you think that question was asked sweetly Jesus what, what authority did you have to do the- no by what authority do you do these things? And, and in Jesus' reply is very provocative because he says, well, I'm not going to answer your question. But here's what I will do. I'll ask you a question. You answer my question. I'll answer yours. And so he says, John's baptism, was it from men or heaven? And they don't know the answer to that. That makes them even matter. And then following that incident, there are three parables. Uh, the parable of the two sons in verse 28. The parable of the tenants in verse 33. And then in chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. And all three of those parables are designed to expose a corrupt religious leadership. And they know that he's talking about them. They say that in verse 45 of chapter 21. Therefore, I, uh, no, verse, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. Well, they perceived right. Because he was talking about them. So in between his entry and the event that we're going to look at this morning, several things that happened to make people matter. To raise the temperature of this discussion. This is a very charged environment. And into that charged environment, this next event takes place. And it begins uh, with three things. Remember, um, the scribes and the Pharisees determined that they're going to ask Jesus some questions. Uh, it's in verse 15 of chapter 22. They all get together and they say, okay, here's what we'll do now. 
we'll put together some questions that will trap him. We'll try to, we'll try to get him to hang himself. And so remember the, the, the Herodians and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, listen, uh, is, uh, are we supposed to pay uh, taxes to Caesar? Do you see what's going on here, guys? And of course he handles them very readily and, and they limp off. And then the third part of this whole scene is somebody, a scribe asking what's the foremost commandment of all. But the second part of this scene is what we're looking at. It's this incident with the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a part of this plot to try and get him to, to hang himself. And so the Sadducees, with the, with the atmosphere charged with animosity, come to Jesus and step into the ring, bringing, bringing their silly little story about the, um, about the woman who had seven husbands. May she rest in peace. But um, I, I, I want to look at this event under two headings, guys. This is, the, this is the conversation that I'm telling you was a very modern one. It's religious skeptics debating with the religious leader over the subject of the resurrection. And the atmosphere is very tense. That's modern, ladies and gentlemen. That's what's going on all around us. Well, it's that conversation I want to look at under those two headings. Here they are, uh, the analysis of the skeptics and then the analysis of the answer of Jesus. That's all it is. Because the, the text really breaks up into two very very clean little paragraphs. One is the skeptics' approach and the other is Jesus' answer. That's where we're going to look at it. Okay, so let's look at the skeptics first. Who are they? The Sadducees. Who who are Sadducees? You know, we know a lot about Pharisees, but we don't know much about Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees were were the conservatives. They were the religious conservatives of the day. Now, you know what Woodrow Wilson said about conservatives, don't you? Conservative, a conservative is one who sits and thinks and mostly sits. Um, he's he's too cowardly to fight and too fat to run. <laughs> That's who we are. But but anyway, I don't know whether it applies to these guys, but the, the, the Sadducees were the conservatives. And um, they only recognize certain books of the Old Testament as being authoritative. Actually, they only recognize five. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, uh, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the only thing that they even considered canonical. But not only that, the text tells us um, that they were the anti-resurrection crowd. It says it right there in the, in the opening verse, verse 23. They didn't believe in a resurrection. But that's not the only things they rejected. We're told later, even in the book of Acts, that they, they rejected the existence of demons, the, the existence of uh, angels, and the existence of any kind of resurrected afterlife. Any, any of that afterlife, they, they rejected all of it. These guys were the, um, the intellectuals. They, they were the scientists. They were the rationalists, the materialists of the day. And so here they come to uh, meet with Jesus. They want to talk to him about this resurrection business. <laughs> we'll put him in his place. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? They don't even believe in the resurrection, but they want to talk to him about the resurrection. How, how, how hypocritical. But they come and they, they think uh, they're going to 
They're going to show this boy who's boss. Yeah, we saw, we saw um, uh, how he handled the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, but, but we're not Pharisees. I mean, we're far brighter than the, than the average Pharisee. We'll show him. We'll put him in his place. We'll, we'll take care of this Nazarene. And so they come. They come to ask their question. Yeah. A question, nothing. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to hang himself. And so they've, they've cooked up this scenario. Now, whether it was a real scenario or a, or a hypothetical, we don't know, but the story was, a woman had a, you know, the law of Moses says you got to marry if you die and all that. She had a husband, he died, and he didn't have a child. Seven of them. And ladies and gentlemen, as they ask the question, you can almost hear the sneer in their voices, can't you? Hey, Jesus, I got I want to talk to you about something. <laughs> can't you hear it? Maybe in my voice, but you can hear it in the text, too. Guys, let me take a minute just to talk about that sneer for a moment. <laughs> you know, I heard a preacher say recently that um, the, the fall of the human race uh, was caused not by an act, not by a thought, but by a sneer. He was referring, of course, to Genesis chapter 3, where Satan approaches Adam and Eve. And um, I, I, you may not know, remember this, but... When Satan speaks to Eve, he says this. Did God actually say? In that word, actually, what you've got is a sneer. I mean, Satan is not trying to convince Adam and Eve to deny what God said. No, no. He just wants them to laugh at it. He he didn't come to, to deny that God said what he said. He came to to mock it. And so what he's trying to do is to get Adam and Eve to change their attitude about what God has said. I mean, did did God actually say that? That's ridiculous. I mean, what kind of jerk would say something like that? So what he's trying to do is not to bring evidence and argument. No, 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 no. He's just trying to get them to mock at it and laugh at what God has said. Ladies and gentlemen, I I say to you, not all the time, but most of the time, that I'm dealing with a religious skeptic. I'm not dealing with an argument. I'm not dealing with evidences. I'm dealing with a sneer. Why? Why? You don't believe that, do you? You know, we, um, we hate the idea of being laughed at. We hate the idea of being rejected. And so, in high school or college, somebody looks at us and says, <laughs> I mean, you don't believe that, do you? And we tuck tails and run. You know, when they say things like that to me, I want to say something like this and have said something like this. Um, you know, what you're saying is not an argument. You're not bringing evidences. What you're bringing is a sneer. So when you, when you get your argument and your case together and you want to come back and chat over this, let me know because I'd love to chat with you over it. But right now, 
all you've got is a sneer. And that's what these Sadducees brought that day, ladies and gentlemen. A sneer. That's what the skeptic does bring. For every, for every one time I talk to somebody who's got reasonable, rational questions and honest pursuit of the truth. For every one time I talk to somebody like that, I talk to 99 people with a sneer who want to say, you don't believe that. Well, folks, when there's an evidence, when there's an argument, we can chat. But if all you've got is a sneer, you don't have an argument. You don't have a case. What you have is contempt. Now, that's what these Sadducees brought along with them to dialogue with Jesus. Now, look with me now at the second half of the text as we talk about Jesus' reply. And guys, in, in a lot of ways, his reply is utterly breathtaking. There is so much crammed into two or three sentences that we, we hardly have time to cover it all, so I guess we better get started. But um, here, here's, here's how he starts. There's four things about his reply that I want you to see. And the, the last one is, is category busting. But I saved it for last. There's four things about Jesus' reply to the Sadducees that I want you to see. First of all, here's how he starts. He says, <clears throat> you are wrong. That's what it says. In fact, the, the, the King James Bible says, ye do err. I love that. Ye do err. Well, ye fellas, ye err, and you're wrong, and your error is because of two things. Number one, your ignorance of the Scriptures. And number two, you underestimate the power of God. Now, gang, if that is not a definition of unbelief, I don't know one. You know, I, I, I often want to say to people, or, or actually I have said to people, who come to me and say, well, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. And I say, well, I hear what you're saying. And, and you're obviously a very intelligent, knowledgeable person. And, and I, because I know that you wouldn't reject a book that you've never read before um, without studying the book before you reject it. So tell me this. In, in the course of your study of the scriptures, what have you come up with as to the, the primary message, the, the main storyline of the Bible? How, how do you see that? What, what is the main storyline of the Bible? And inevitably, they say something like this. Well, the Bible is, um, the Bible's a book about how you're supposed to live. The Bible's a book about uh, what God expects out of your behavior. If there was a God, you know, um, you know, the, the, the Bible is a book about a code of ethics. That's what it is. And then I always love to say, well, my friend, that's very unfortunate because in your study of the Bible, you've missed the primary message of the book. Because the Bible's not about ethics. The Bible is about redemption. And somehow in all of your study of it, you miss that. What I'm saying, guys, is skepticism today is just like skepticism in the New Testament. You know what causes it? An ignorance of the scriptures 
and an underestimate of the power of God. That's exactly what he says here in, in verse, uh, if I can see it, 29. He says, you are wrong. And you're wrong because you don't know what the Bible has to say in the first place. Secondly, you underestimate the power of God. So that's the first thing he says. The, the second thing he says in terms of his reply, it, it, what I want you to notice about his reply is this. There is absolutely not one piece of equivocation, not one piece of hesitation, not one if and or but. He says in, tar- in terms of voting for the resurrection, I vote emphatically yes. Look what he says in verse 30. For in the resurrection... No, 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 no. Um, Verse 31, as the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God has said to you? Jesus makes it very clear that when it comes to the resurrection, he is emphatic about his defense of its existence, let's say. Now, guys, the, 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 the outcome of that is If Jesus so emphatically states that there is a resurrection, do you realize that he's banking his whole mission on this resurrection business? Jesus is is putting his whole character on the line because of this resurrection business. Gang, there's only three options here. Either he is right about the resurrection or he is lying about the resurrection or he's wrong. These last two options, he's lying or he's wrong, would disqualify him to be a savior. So, so if he's wrong about the resurrection, let's stop all this business about salvation. Let's not talk about this anymore. Let's burn our Bibles. Don't come back here next Sunday. Because Jesus emphatically states, have you not read what God said to you? Yes, I believe in the resurrection, says Jesus. Of course I believe in the resurrection. So if he's wrong about that, ladies and gentlemen, we don't need to keep talking about him being a savior. You know, I love it that it's so emphatically positive or so emphatically affirmative of the resurrection. But the world thinks he's emphatically wrong. That's a call that you're going to have to make. But, but know this as you make it. This Jesus of Nazareth that you've heard about leaves no question as to where he stands on this subject. He believes in resurrection. Now, two other things and we're done. About, about his reply. The third thing is that he uses the Old Testament in his reply. <laughs> he Actually, he uses the Pentateuch, which is kind of a, a tweak uh, to these Sadducees because he's using the portion of the scriptures that they are recognized as as authoritative. He he draws from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, which is the story about the burning bush. You remember that one? You know, uh, Israel is in in bondage in in, uh, Egypt. Moses is in exile because he murdered an Egyptian soldier. He's on the backside of some mountain taking care of a handful of sheep. And he notices a bush that is burning and it's not being consumed. And what's more, that bush is talking. And, and out of that bush comes a voice that teaches us something about Easter. 
Now look at it. I want to show you what Jesus means in verse 32. He says, um, Jesus says, and he's quoting Exodus 3. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Now, guys, a couple of things that he says there. Number one, here's what he says. Abraham is not dead. Um, neither is Isaac nor Jacob. Um, God's people are living even when they appear to have died long ago. They died in this world, but they're living in another one, which really is the real one. But, but he's saying Abraham is not dead. And then he goes on to say, I am not the God of a group of mummies. I am, I, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is not related to the dead. He's related to the living. God is not the God of a handful of ashes. The God of the non-existent. And, and in addition, these resurrected people have names. They have identities. Guys, in that one stroke, in that one sentence in verse 32... Jesus is communicating to us that eternal life is not eternal life if I cease to exist. Guys, when you came to Christ, what did you come looking for? Were you looking for just a handful of temporal blessings, a few goodies from Jesus? Well, then I'm not sure you came to the right Jesus because this Jesus, this Jesus gives eternal life. A life which goes on. And that one, well, this one is only the warm-up for that one. That's what he's saying in verse 32, folks. Abraham's alive and God is not related to the dead. He's related to the living. Now, we come to the fourth part of his reply, which to me is the best for last. It's a... It's a category buster, folks. It's a category. I mean, we, our whole world of reality, it's contained in verse 30, is, has got to be rethought. We, we have to think in whole new categories because the resurrected life is wholly different than this one. Let me show you what he says. It's, it's all contained in verse 30. For the resurrection, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Two things in that text, guys. First of all, no marriage. No marriage in heaven. For some of you, that's good news. Um, for others of us, we regret it. But, um, guys, this is more than just the record of a fact. Do you know why there's no marriage in heaven? Because there's no death in heaven. You see, in this world, marriage is necessary because people die and you need a fresh supply of bodies. But in that one, there is no death and consequently, marriage is unnecessary. There are no funerals, there are no cemeteries, there are no caskets in heaven. So the supply is everlasting. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's never going away. Consequently, marriage is not needed. Um, I'm not married in heaven because 
I'm going to be doing other things. I'm going to have other things to occupy my time, my thinking. It is going to be an existence of undivided loyalty. So the first thing that we've got to think newly about is this, folks. In the resurrected life, all relationships change. Everything's different. But then, folks, he goes on. He says, and you are like angels in heaven. (laughs) Folks, um, a resurrected body will not be a reanimation of this body. It will not be a resumption of this life. Guys, think with me just real quick. Those of you who have lost people that were very dear to you, you ask these questions. You wonder, what's going on? Jesus is telling you. He's saying, first of all, all relationships, that all categories for relationships that we understand here are going to have to be changed. Because there's no marriage in heaven. And and the bodies that you will have is not simply a resumption of this life. Folks, the um, the best illustration of that is found in 1 Corinthians 15, where you remember the Apostle Paul talks about seeds and plants. He says, you know, you drop the seed into the ground and it dies and it comes forth this, this new plant. That's what he's saying. You know, my wife and I are, um, we're planting a garden this year. Um, I, I thought originally that I was going to save money. I'm about $37 to the, in the negative column already. Uh, we're going to have to have a lot of cucumbers if, uh, but, but um, we, we're, we call it our little, our salad garden. And I planted three things in my little garden. One of the things that I planted was squash. My wife loves squash. I hate squash. Um, anything that, ugh, um, shouldn't be eaten, um, but um, I planted my squash uh, in the house. In the, you know, I t- got some potting soil and I planted it in a little little pot so that I could get it growing before I planted it yesterday. And when I planted my squash, this is what I planted. I don't know if you see that, but that's a squash. If I'd have brought a cucumber seed, they're they're a tenth of the size. So I brought the squash seed. This is a squash seed, and I put that thing in that in that potting soil. And about a week later. This thing, about four of them, came, came coming out of that stuff. And it, and it, and it wasn't, it didn't look anything like this. I mean, it was leafy. It was green and it had this little fuzzy thing right in the middle of it. You see, Paul's point is, this is how we conceive of life now. But it's going to give rise to this, this other thing that doesn't look anything like this thing. Guys, Jesus is saying, you will be like angels. What all does that mean? I don't know. But I know it's time to stop thinking of the resurrected life in terms of the seed. There's this green, leafy, fuzzy thing that's going to happen. And and, and I told you this is a category buster, guys. We, we're, we're, we don't think in terms of the resurrected life. I mean, this is what we think that we're just going to get a new one of these and it's going to continue. No. That's the whole argument of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, or at least part of it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The weakness, the weakness is replaced with strength. 
The sickness, it's replaced with health. And the limitations, both physical and mental, the limitations are replaced with new capacities, new mental and physical capacities. Which ones? I don't know. But generally speaking, they will be like angels. Guys, in the resurrected life, in that one verse in verse 30, he tells you two very important things. First of all, you've got to rethink relationships. They're going to be all different. And you have to rethink your bodily existence. It's going to be completely different. How different? Amazingly so. All the details I don't have. I only have a couple. Folks, um, the biblical view of resurrection is not a future that is just a, a consolation for the life that you didn't get here. The, new, the, the, the resurrected body, according to the Bible, is one that is a, a return to the way that God designed it in the first place before sin took its toll. Okay. The debate is over. Jesus won. Well, I don't know how you say that. I mean, the Sadducees could have won. Well, the text says, look if, look with me. In verse 33, it says, And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Read on one more verse. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so the text says Jesus won. It says the crowd was overswept away with Jesus. And the Pharisees recognized that the Sadducees had been silenced. So, so you know what happens next, don't you? Here's what happens. The Sadducees go to Jesus and apologize for their foolishness and ask how they too can become Christians like these others. That's not what happened. You know what happened. About three days later, these same guys got together and they begged Pilate to crucify him. <laughs> How does that happen? How can smart, intellectual, rational people lose the argument but maintain their opposition to Christ and Christianity? They have no case. They have no argument. They have only a sneer. And once you point out the sneer, they just get angrier. How does that happen? Well, guys, know this. It happens all the time. For every one person that I talk to that comes to me with an honest, rational, intelligent desire to know the truth, I deal with 99 people who have a sneer. That's all they've got. And the moment that I point that out, the argument really comes to an end. It comes to an end because they're angry. Because the truth the truth seems to do that to you. I'll tell you what else it, in terms of explaining how that happens. I think it says a whole lot about the hardness of the human heart, doesn't it? That you can have all of your, your arguments answered and, and overturned. 
that you can be silenced like Jesus silenced the, the Sadducees. And instead of saying, oh my, I see the groundlessness of my argument. I see that I have been holding on to a lie. I need to get a hold of the truth and he, that's him. Instead of racing to him, I, I want to make sure that somebody kills him. Or I want to be very contagious with my sneer. I mean, <laughs> you Christians, you don't believe that, do you? My friend, can we talk? Do you know that's all you've got is a sneer? It's not an argument. It's not evidences. It's not a case. It's a sneer. And it's that thing that is separating you right now from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And what it says is that the, the unregenerate, the non-Christian heart is so hard. Folks, um, just know I'll never be able to argue you into the kingdom. And it's not because I don't have the argument. It's that you don't have the heart. The only hope that any of us have is that the power of God that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, that he will use that same power to exchange my heart of stone and give me a new one. Easter is about the power of God conquering death. It's also about the power of God to change a hard heart into a believing one. Have, um, have you received the resurrected Christ as your Savior? If you have, this may be your last Easter among us. For some of us in a group this size, some of us is, are never going to see another Easter. But just know this. If He is your Savior, there's a resurrected life awaiting you. If He is not your Savior, then my friend, there is nothing stopping you from receiving Him as your Savior right now. Our Father, I do pray that you will um, remind us of the eternity that is awaiting us, an eternity that's made certain because of the victory of Christ over the dead, that our resurrection and his resurrection are bound together, that if we don't rise, he didn't, he didn't rise, and if he didn't rise, we don't rise, but because he did rise, we rise. I pray, Father, that you will remind us of that tomorrow morning when we're tempted to discouragement and despair. Father, if you've led people here this morning who have not yet met the Savior of ours, might they see him in his beauty. Might they see him in his saving willingness. Might they embrace him as the only hope any of us have to overcome a heart, a heart that is so hard. 
for those of us in here, Father, whose hearts have been exchanged by your sovereign grace. We bless you and ask for greater supplies of grace that we might live a life that is more pleasing and more Christ-like. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.